following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Malachi chapter 2. This may be one of the most challenging, needlessly controversial, difficult passages of this, of this book right here, of this book of Malachi. Because it deals with, among other things, divorce. This is the passage, in case you're ever wondering, I don't know if you would have ever even thought about this or if it would have been on your mind, if you're ever wondering, why does he preach the way he does? Why does he go through a book of the Bible verse by verse instead of just go here and then go here or go here? Because this passage right here today, if I didn't preach verse by verse through the Bible, I would skip this one. So that ought to make you real encouraged about being here today. I would skip this one. There's a, a verse in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, and it simply says this. It's in the middle of a thought. It's not a full sentence. It's at the end of a, a little sentence. And it says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Talking about God. If we, people, are faithless, He, God, remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. It's in His character to be faithful. That's who He is. Period. No exceptions. Not so with human beings. So briefly, I want to just tell you... uh, I don't know why I'm sharing this. Um, I want to share with you my personal experience, my first personal experience with unfaithfulness. I was 16 years old. I was beginning my junior year in high school. And sometime that fall, I can't remember exactly when, uh, and I will try to be brief here and and not share too much detail because I don't want to hurt the feelings of anyone in my family. But I came home from school. My sister was already home from school. She's two years older than I am. And I remember walking in the door and... My dad was home from work, which was odd because he didn't get home from work in the middle of the afternoon. He'd come home early. So I walk in the door from the carport, which leads into the kitchen, and there's my mom, my dad, my sister sitting around the kitchen table. And I'm like, all right, what in the world's going on here? And long story short, my 
mother and father proceed to explain to me and my sister why they were not going to be together anymore. Now, I should preface that by saying I had kids who were my friends throughout school. I had uh, other friends who had been through the same thing. Their parents, their parents split up, divorced for whatever reason, and that was that was uh, not normal. But it was they'd already been through it, so it was not as shocking to them. I had gotten to a point in my own mind where I had already decided, okay, well that's not going to happen to me. We've already, you know, we've we've gone far enough down the road here where I, I had already filed that away in my mind that that's not going to happen to me. So by doing that, now I did that to myself, you know, that was just a kind of a subconscious thought, but by doing that, it made this particular day in my life far worse because I had already convinced myself I never had to deal with that. I had friends that dealt with that, but I never had to deal with that. But here I am walking in from, from high school and... Here we are in this conversation, and they're trying to explain why they're splitting up. And I remember, I don't remember a whole lot after that, just the, the shock of, of the information, but I remember distinctly uh, a feeling of disbelief, a feeling of helplessness, and I remember saying to them that you mean to tell me there's no possible way you can work this out? That's just it. That's just it's, you're just you're not asking for input, you're just telling us what's happening. And that's that's what it was. It was yes, this is this is not open for this is not a debate, this is not a dialogue, this is just for us to tell you this is what's happening. That was my first experience, major experience, of dealing with the consequences of unfaithfulness. And so, I have moved on somewhat from that. I have grown from that. I was 16 years old. I mean, 34 years ago, I'd like to think I have... Uh, progressed in my life since then. Certainly, I, I would hope I have matured since then. But I've also incorporated some things into my into my life, into my thinking, to the extent that I also remember distinctly having a conversation with my wife before she was my wife. Um, Darlene didn't have to deal with that. Uh, her her mother passed five years ago, but prior to that point, her mom and dad had been married right at 49 years, and uh, so she didn't have to deal with that. But I remember when we were engaged, having a conversation, a very specific conversation, and it went something like this, if you even think remotely in your wildest dream or nightmare if you think remotely if you would ever come to a point where you would not want to be with me, then we're not getting married. 
I'm not doing that again. Certainly not in my own life. This was I was a, a somewhat passive participant in the, my previous experience. But if if in your brain anywhere, if there's any thought that this might ever happen, then we're not getting married because I'm not doing that. And that's it's a non-negotiable. I'm not doing it. And and I realized at at the time after that that my perspective on that particular subject was not just a biblical principle. It came out of personal experience. It came out of well, I know how I felt and I'm I'm not doing that to anybody else. I'm just I mean, things would have to be just extraordinarily bad for that to happen. Now, that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about me and my personal experience. But I felt like I needed to tell you all that before we read these seven verses and before we talk about what it says and what it means because here's what I'm not about to do. I need everybody to really try and pay attention to what I'm saying because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying and I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am not up here today to point a finger at anybody for any reason because as far as I'm concerned, that never, that's never right to do under any circumstance, no matter what the subject is. And I'm not here to, uh, certainly not here to judge, and I'm certainly not here uh, to say anything that's not right here in the Scripture. What I am here to do is simply read this passage of Scripture and explain to the best of my ability what it means and for us to apply it to our lives. And so I just want to say up front, if some of the things that we read and, and talk about this morning are difficult, I'm sorry, but I didn't write it. So I'm not, I'm not giving you my opinion on anything. I'm giving you, this is what the Bible says, and for better or worse, this is what it means. And we have to sort that out, okay? Because this Scripture is probably one of the most direct uh, passages of Scripture about unfaithfulness because of where it comes from. It's not primarily, at least initially, it's not primarily about marriage. It's about God's people and God's covenant and the necessity of being faithful to God and His covenant. Okay, So that's the context we're talking about. If you have these little subtitles in your Bible, you, you, you know, each, every so often a paragraph, it'll have a little heading. The Bible I'm reading this morning says Judah's marital unfaithfulness. And so it's way bigger than just relationships among human beings. It's relationships with human beings and God, which is really, really important. So I know that's a, a longer than normal introduction, so let me read these seven verses. We're going to point out several things that we find in this Scripture and try to conclude in a way that will give us some practical application. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. 
Don't all of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, You've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? Why is the, what is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that You would give us grace this morning. We need grace to process this Word. We need supernatural intervention in our minds to understand this Word. And we need all the divine strength we can muster and that can be given to us by You in order to try to be obedient to what You tell us. So Lord, help us, please. Help us as we walk through this Scripture today so that You would be glorified in us and we would honor Christ. It's in His name I pray. Amen. So here's this passage. There's multiple things going on. There's multiple applications of what's happening with God's people. Judah is is unfaithful to the Lord. And, and so... You can see now, I hope, why at the beginning of our service this morning, I read one verse from Luke chapter 9. Because Jesus told everybody that was within earshot, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross every day and follow me. That's not pleasant. No part of that necessarily is pleasant. So I want to just put to rest all these uh, nonsensical preachers, is what I call them, that would dare to get anywhere where anybody can hear them, whether it's in a, a church behind a pulpit or on a radio or on television, and tell anybody that come follow Jesus, your life will be wonderful. It'll be the best, your best life. You know, everything will be fabulous. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. You'll you know, everything will be perfect. No, no more problems. 
That's not in the Bible. Nowhere is that in the Bible. Now, your eternity, jam up and jelly tight. Eternity is wonderful with Christ. But you know what happens on earth? When you surrender to Jesus, you have just put a spiritual target on your back. Because up until that point, if you're not following Jesus, if you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't surrendered to Christ, if you haven't done any of those things, up until that point, the devil, our enemy, is leaving you alone. Because why is he, why is he going to bother with somebody that's on his side? Whether you know it or not. If you're not following Jesus, you're following the devil. The only two teams there are. So whether you realize it or not, if you're not on team Jesus, then you're on the loser team. And I mean that literally and figuratively. So he's not going to bother with you. You switch teams. You get radically saved by the blood of Jesus. Your whole direction in life changes. Your priorities change. You're now living for the glory of Christ. You're going away from the devil. Now that takes his notice. And he's going to make it known. So we will have difficulty. Which is why Jesus would say in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So when we follow Jesus, there's going to be difficulty. And this right here is right at the center of difficulty in this world. Did you know, this is silly for me to even ask, did you know that in every single context, it's really difficult to be faithful? Every context. Whether it, you know, all right, here, here's a perfect example. This is a good uh, cultural example. Everybody will understand this, I think. Did you know that 50 years ago, if you were in town, if you needed a loan for some reason, and, and you, you needed, you know, maybe you needed to go get a, a house or a car, or you needed to repair something, or you, you know, maybe you were trying to buy some land to to farm or something, whatever it may be. Fifty years ago, if you knew the fella at the bank, and y'all were uh, familiar, you, you know, you knew each other, and you knew him, and he knew what kind of man you were, did you know you could walk into the bank, and you could look him in the eye, and you could shake his hand, and you could explain to him your, your situation, and I need such and such amount of money, and... Uh, you know, this is the problem. I, I I really need this loan. And you could look him in the eye, shake his hand, and you know what you know what would happen? You'd get a loan. Because he would trust you because you were man enough to look him in the eye, shake his hand, give him your word. And that meant something. Now you got a stack of forms, about like this here. And it doesn't matter who you know. You'll be, you'll be fortunate 
if you walk out of a bank with a loan, if you qualify. Because the banks went through a period where people's word started to mean less. And as it did, they couldn't trust people the way they used to to just give them the money and expect them to pay it back because people started not paying it back. So now, you got paperwork, you got credit check, you got all kind of nonsense you got to go through to try to get the same loan. Now, that's one little instance in society, but it's a symptom of a bigger problem. Unfaithfulness. In this scripture, we have multiple ways where God's people demonstrate their unfaithfulness. And so what I've done is, in each of these four little points, I have changed it to um, a positive command to demonstrate their mistake, what God's people were doing here in this section. So each one, you understand, that that's what it's going to look like. So let's just walk through them. Number one, be faithful to one another. Be faithful to one another. Verse 10, God's people were not being faithful to one another. Right? So, by way of application, that's what we need to do. We all have one Father. We were all created by one God. But, as God's people did here in verse 10, they profaned the covenant of their ancestors because they acted treacherously against one another. They were not treating each other with faithfulness. They were not honoring their word. And it basically amounts to this. Um, If I tell you I'm going to do something, I need to do that. Right? I mean, is that that's not that difficult to figure out, right? If I want to be a man of my word, a man of integrity, which, by the way, you know what that word integrity means? That means your words and your actions are integrated. That's where literally where it comes from. You have integrity when your words and your actions match. So, if I tell you I'm going to be somewhere, I need to be there. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I need to do it. Right? They weren't doing that. They weren't doing that at all. We see our society now in light of our current context and we think, well, gosh, things have gotten so bad here in these last 40, 50 years. You know, we see the deterioration of our culture. Well, guess what? That's been going on for a long time. Long time. There's two people I read this week that were really helpful on this passage. Robbie Gallaty, who's the pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church up north of Nashville, Tennessee, and then also James Montgomery Boyce, who's no longer alive, but brilliant scholar. Robbie Gallaty said about this verse, Jesus said we would be recognized as His disciples by our love for one another. Right? I mean, literally, that's what He said. By this the world will know you're my disciples if love one another. By implication then, a lost world will question whether you're a disciple if you lack love for one another. So, on one side of that coin, hey, love one another. That's how the world knows you follow Jesus. Well, the inverse is also true. You don't treat people with love, then how are you going to 
convince anybody in the world that you really do follow Jesus. Does that make sense? That's a, a very uh, primary characteristic of a disciple of Christ. Faithful love toward one another. So be faithful to one another. Number two, be faithful to God's Word. Be faithful to God's Word. In verses 11 and 12, now Judah, as a nation, has acted treacherously. They've committed a detestable act, the Bible says. They profaned the Lord's sanctuary by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now let me tell you what that means. Did you realize that in Scripture there was never a command about marrying people with different skin tone? That was never a biblical principle or a biblical issue ever? You know what was the issue? Marrying someone that didn't believe in God. Spiritual foreign nation. So here, this is what Judah has done. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god, meaning they're intermarrying with people who do not follow the God of the Bible. So you know what that does? It pollutes God's people and their spiritual standing before God. Here's an illustration that might help you understand that. Let's pretend that up here on this platform, I'm standing on the edge of a swimming pool. And right down here is the pool. Okay? And let's say someone else is down in the swimming pool. They're in the water, in the deep end. Uh, and they're uh, like up to their shoulders. And they're just like resting their arms on the edge. Okay? You get the picture? But I'm up here, I'm outside the pool. Now, if I reach down, and let's say, you know, all things remaining equal, the person in the pool is about the same size as I am, and I reach down with my hand, and he reaches up with his hand, and we lock hands, is it going to be easier for me to pull him up out of the water, or is it going to be easier for him to pull me down into the water? See what I'm saying? Put spiritual parameters on that. You want to hang out with somebody who doesn't believe like you do? That's cool. You want to be friends? We're, we're commanded to do that, right? We, we need to befriend those who are without Christ and try to love them toward Jesus, right? But when it comes to dating, if you're under the age of 25, I want you to listen up real close. When it comes to dating, i got three daughters. They're all under 25. You know what question one on the application to date my daughters? Not, are you a Christian? A lot of people say that. Do you follow Jesus and can you prove it by your life? Question one. And guess what? You don't answer that one right? You don't show your answer to that? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how much money you got. I don't care who your family is. You don't answer that question? Get off my lawn. End of story. 
End of story. There's no debate. Because that is the number one priority. Spiritual things. And I can hear them now. And then thankfully none of them are in the room, so I can talk about them even more freely. They'll look at it later on the live stream and fuss at me. It'll be alright. Oh, but he's, he looks so good. He's so pretty. Well, I, I don't care. I don't care what he looks like. But he's so nice. Yeah, I don't care. He opens the car door for me. I don't care. Why are you getting in his car? I got friends and property and a bulldozer. I mean, I'm just saying. Question one, in order of importance. Do you follow Jesus? Does your life demonstrate that you follow Jesus? Because if that is not in order, nothing else matters. Nothing. Violating this covenant is grounds for being cut off from the people of God. And if you look very carefully at the words that are used in this, in this particular verse, 11 and 12, he calls it a, a detestable act. But then he says, after he says, Judas profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be. And look, look at the last part here. Even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. You know what that means? You can't buy your way out of this. You can't, you can't put enough in the offering plate to cover up spiritual unfaithfulness. Be faithful to God's Word. To God's word. See, uh, I'm going to quote this guy again because it's so good. Robbie Galilee. The problem with marrying someone who is an unbeliever isn't merely that they belong to a different religious organization. The problem with marrying an unbeliever is the different worldview through which they view all things. See, if you, if you don't follow Jesus, then you don't have a biblical worldview. And sometimes when we follow Jesus, it takes us time to develop a biblical worldview. But if we're not filtering how we process information through the Scriptures, that's a problem. James Boyce said, if you willfully disobey God and marry a non-Christian, do not beguile yourself with the belief that you will be the cause of your husband or wife's conversion. By the grace of God, that may possibly happen, but it usually does not. Mixed marriages, Christian, unchristian, mixed marriages usually end in great unhappiness or divorce. And even if that is not the case, you will certainly bring much unnecessary sorrow upon yourself by your disobedience. By the way, this is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked. A believer with an unbeliever. And he gives five examples of opposite things like what, what possible commonality does light have with darkness? That's the main, one of the main ones. It's not wise, it's not biblical, it's disobedient for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. Be faithful to God's Word. Number three, be faithful to your spouse. Verses 13 and 14. 
The Bible says God's altar is covered with tears. There's weeping and groaning from the Lord. God no longer respects your offerings. He no longer receives them gladly from your hands. You know, this every wedding I've ever done, I've, every wedding I've ever officiated, before we repeat vows, whatever those vows may be, sometimes people write their own vows, sometimes I have several that, I, that are similar that I'll give as an option. But every time I say verbally in that wedding, God is a witness to your wedding vows. I say that specifically because it's true. It's true. God witnesses wedding vows between a man and a woman. And it says it specifically in verse 14. When people in Judah ask, Why? What are you talking about? Why are you not going to respect my offering or receive gladly from my hands? And they say, why? And it says in verse 14, even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Even though, as if to say, it should have been important enough that God was witnessing those things to help us to remain faithful to those things. See, biblical marriage is more than a decision, it's more than a social contract, it's a covenant. It's a covenant before God. And it should be treated with the utmost importance. But again, the Bible says you have acted treacherously against your wife. You violated the covenant. James Boyce said that in the final analysis, the, the fundamental reason why God hates divorce is that God created marriage to illustrate the most blessed of all spiritual relationships, which is the union of a believing man or woman with Christ, the divine bridegroom of the church. So divorce must therefore illustrate apostasy or falling away of a man or woman from God, which results in damnation. You know, another popular scripture that we always use, that I always use, uh, when, when it comes to marriage and weddings is Ephesians chapter 5. Right? That's the most um, thorough treatment of the subject. From verse 22 to verse 32, 33. And in that scripture, it's very clearly shown that marriage between a man and a woman is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. It's supposed to demonstrate the way Christ loves the church unselfishly, unconditionally, sacrificially, those types of things, right? Because that's how Jesus loves the church, right? That's why it's so important. That's why there's a, a covenant relationship. And yet, in our society, we have gradually but systematically changed the view of marriage. We have relaxed the seriousness of marriage. We have decided that it's not a big, as big a deal as we once thought because years and years and years ago, it was not prevalent. Did you know that the, the numbers... I, I, did a, I looked in the statistical data that I could gather from 
Census Bureau and CDC and different places that gathered this type of information. And from 1970 to 2020, the, I mean, it's just, it's astronomical, the change. It was like one in, it was one in seven. Let me think. Let me get my dates right. Might have been farther back than that. Might have been like 1940. At any rate, one in seven marriages end in divorce. Then like 10, 20 years later, it was one in six. Then it was one in four. Then it was one in three. And now it's one in two. And now, the opposite effect. Now there's less and less people actually getting married, which skews the statistics because there's less divorces because there's less marriages. You know why? Because people think, and they're wrong, people think, oh, it's no big deal to get married. It's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah it is. It's a real big deal. Especially when God is the one we're answering to. It's a huge deal. But society and culture has pressed in long enough to where now it's not as big a deal. It's not as serious a thing. There's all kinds of different circumstances where, for whatever reason, society has just tried to help us believe that marriage is not all it's cracked up to be. Well, let me just tell you this. If you're going to follow Jesus, He never said it was going to be easy. And He didn't say it was going to be convenient all the time. But one thing He did promise was that it was right. God's way is always right. It doesn't matter how many people scream it from the street corners. It doesn't matter how many people get on some news station and tell us this or that. God's Word is never wrong. And what's wrong is the fact that we just disregard it. We act like it's not important. Be faithful to your spouse. Last one. Be faithful to the marriage covenant. Verses 15 and 16. goes back to Genesis. Genesis 2.24 after, in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 19, you see a description of God creating and man and woman. And then in verse 24, Genesis 2.24, the Bible says, For this reason, and that reason is, this is how God created things. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And you know why? This prophecy tells us. What is the one flesh seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. Generations to come will be godly. When, when people follow God's design, then God is glorified in that situation. Does that make sense? We, we, we do things God's way, God gets glory. And so that's what the creative order teaches us. Didn't God make them one? He made them one flesh. And by the way, just from a purely uh, physiological standpoint, if, if two are one flesh and you tear that one flesh in half, what happens? They both die. There's great injury. 
So God has a perspective on that because it is His institution after all. So one of the godly priorities of the one flesh is godly offspring. We were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Create a, a, a world filled with worshipers of God. That was the point. And then once again here, don't act treacherously. In fact, in verse 15 it says, watch yourselves carefully. Then at the end of verse 16, therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Don't act treacherously. It uses that same phrase five times in seven verses. Because a divorce is a result somewhere, if you dig through there, it's a result of hatred and injustice. So when you read the Scripture, if he hates and divorces his wife, verse 16, he covers his garment with injustice. There's hatred, there's injustice, because things are not as they were meant to be. And it's unfortunate, because I know, I mean, let me just, I'll just be honest. Being a pastor and talking about this subject is no fun. It's not easy. Because I've got people in my family that have dealt with this and it's not good. It's never good. And I think about the consequences of it. And I think about all the, the different details. And none of them are good. And I feel so badly when things like this happen. But the world we live in is full of sin. It's full of sinful people. It's full of people that don't honor the covenant. They don't do things God's way. And I've seen so many people that are on the receiving end of injustice. And they're on the receiving end. It's like, that wasn't their plan. They, they were trying to be faithful. They were trying to do things the right way. And they weren't treated the right way. And it breaks my heart. Because then they have to deal with the fallout and the consequences. But the reason why the covenant is so important, the reason why the Bible says in the last two verses in this section, guard yourselves carefully, watch carefully, because a divorce shows a picture of Christ abandoning His church, which He never does, and then the church leaving Christ, something we're not advised to do, there's just nothing good about it. It harms everyone involved. Now, am I talking about spiritual things or am I talking about human relationships? Yes. It harms everyone involved. You break the covenant with Jesus Christ, you, you, you dishonor Him and you prove yourself to be unfaithful to Christ, it hurts everybody involved. It hurts everybody involved. 
you find yourself in a relationship that you anticipated was going to be godly and then it turns out not to be because the other person decides they just don't want to follow Jesus and they don't want to do the things they're supposed to do and, and conduct a marriage relationship in the way God prescribes and, and so you're left dealing with the results of it. Hurts everybody involved. Did you know that if we just did things the way God says to do them, things would turn out right? Tell me how that works. Interesting story here, and I'll close with this. Do you know why the Roman Empire fell, ultimately? I mean, the most powerful empire around at the time. The first and foremost reason the Roman Empire fell was the rapid divorce rate within the community, which in turn undermined the dignity and the sanctity of the home. Divorce was the number one reason, and a second reason was the decay of religion, at that time Christianity, allowing it to become ritualistic and lifeless. Those two things were tied together. An entire empire fell to pieces because people were not faithful to God and faithful to each other. Isn't that ironic? When God tells us how to avoid that. So, let's go back to Luke 9.23. How do we avoid this? How, how are we able to be faithful? If you want to follow Me, deny yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow Me. Jesus is the finest example of faithfulness. We just have to follow Him. The only problem is we have to deny ourselves to do it. And that's the real challenge. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. What a difference that would make. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.